This is Oncology Republic. I'm Felicity Nelson. Clinical trials for cancer drugs increasingly use disease-free survival as a surrogate measure for overall survival. This shortcut means researchers can wind up the trial without waiting for a significant survival gap to appear in the trial cohort. Reporting results earlier means the cancer drugs might be listed on the PBS sooner, so the benefits to patients are tangible. But this method also has a drawback. Patients taking a cancer drug can live disease-free for years and then have a sudden and deadly recurrence of cancer. This means the drug was effective in removing the shadow of cancer, but not actually increasing the overall lifespan of the treatment group. So the question for government then is, can they rely on disease-free survival as a proxy measure for overall survival? And is this measure of disease-free survival a valid measure in terms of quality of life in itself? Italian oncologist Professor Alberto Sobrero spoke on this topic at the Australasian Gastrointestinal Trials Group annual scientific meeting recently. There's no question, he says, patients would rather live longer without disease, even if their overall survival is the same in the end. Professor Sobrero joins us on the Oncology Podcast to discuss the topic in depth. Hello, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hello. My name is Alberto Sobrero. I'm the head of the Medical Oncology Unit in Genoa. And I was very pleased to take part to the Australian Congress on Medical Oncology a couple of weeks ago. And we've heard a bit about your talk, you know, people talking about how interesting it was. So I thought it'd be great to get you on our Oncology Republic show to to really get into this topic of uh, disease-free survival and whether that's a measure that we really should be relying on in clinical trials when it comes to oncology drugs. Um, do you want to just tell us a little bit more about your background and your calling from Italy today? Do you want to just tell our, our listeners a little bit more about you? Uh, yeah, well, uh, uh, I finished uh, my training in Genoa, then I moved uh, to the US where I spent uh, five years, uh, um, where I trained both uh, in internal medicine and in preclinical research uh, in medical oncology. Since uh, then, I turned to the clinic when I returned to Italy. And uh, since then, I have run a series of clinical trials, uh, mostly in uh, GI oncology. I, as I grew older and and, and older, uh, yes, I my my attention was captured by uh, the real reason why we treat patient. Uh, although I'm older, I, I'm still seeing a lot of patient. I would say I see approximately five hundred new patient each year. I know that's unusual in the uh, Western Hemisphere, but but in Italy, when you grow with uh, gray hair, usually you're called to more responsibility directly with patient instead of, uh, say, governing science or other activities like that. So so again, I'm very close to patients. Mm, And what sort of areas of oncology are you focused on? Uh, yes, GI oncology is my main interest, uh, and uh, um, mostly colorectal cancer is the area where I published. Mm. And where are you calling from today? Which city in Italy? Um, I, I live in Genoa, uh, which is in the western and northwestern part of Italy. So you gave a talk at our GI cancer ASM in Australia uh, quite recently, and 
it was about disease-free survival and the use of that as a proxy measure in clinical trials instead of using survival. So can you just give us a bit, bit of a rundown about what that topic is and what you were presenting on at that event? Uh, actually, I was asked to cover several topics. Uh, first of all, how clinical trial design have changed. Uh, second is how to rank the benefit uh, that come out of uh, our effort uh, to improve the treatment of cancer. And then during the discussion, uh, this topic was, uh, uh, was uh, taken and expanded. The topic of... Uh, uh, say the hierarchy um, among endpoint in uh, clinical oncology, uh, and we discussed uh, uh, which are the highest in this uh, uh, rank system uh, of endpoints in oncology, and we all agreed that uh, cure is on top of all our effort. Then. Uh, we also agreed that uh, uh, overall survival and quality of life uh, uh, may rank second. And we were not able to distinguish between which one is the most important between the two. Usually the two go together. And then the issue came up uh, on whether disease-free survival uh, could be even better than this, uh, these two uh, endpoints. And so what what's, was your take on that? Do you think that it is one of the important things that we should measure in trials? And what was sort of the takeaway that you had at the end of that talk? Uh, yeah, my, my comment was that uh, Translating the technical word disease-free survival into patient language means living without cancer and without any complication, major complication of, of cancer. So uh, I have had a personal experience with a melanoma that was taken out from me seven years ago and uh, I never relapsed. So I still live in a condition of disease-free survival. Uh, technically speaking. Uh, and again, because uh, the risk is so low, my life has been uh, absolutely normal. Now, I may be totally unfortunate, and after seven, eight years, I may relapse. But, but again, uh, based on personal experience, uh, living without a relapse is equivalent to cure until, of course, you relapse. And that is my experience with what uh, patients uh, also uh, think. Okay, so you you're sort of in favour of using this disease-free survival as a as an end, a, you know, justifiable endpoint in clinical trials and you know drugs that where they increase disease-free survival, so you might you know live without disease for two years, even if it doesn't necessarily prolong your life overall. You still think it's worth having that as an outcome in itself, you know, just living without disease, even if it's not sort of increasing your overall lifespan. Well, the example I, I made and that triggered this discussion is, is a question that I put to the audience and say, if you're going to live, uh, uh, say, seven years anyway, would you prefer living 
six years without the disease and then having having a rapid course, uh, say six years without a relapse, and that marks six-year disease-free survival. Or you'd prefer living three years without a relapse and then another four years with the disease. Well, there is no, no question about the answer. The answer is I prefer much more a very prolonged disease-free survival and then a rapid course because I would have lived six years essentially as, for a, as a normal life. Now, again... Uh, disease-free survival is usually taken as an endpoint of adjuvant trials. So again, the whole discussion was dedicated to the adjuvant setting. And I have to recall to you that uh, the population of cancer patients is divided in two uh, words. Say the word of uh, the adjuvant setting where people are potentially cured and you get them uh, chemotherapy to increase the chances of cure that is already there. The second word is uh, the word of people who have the disseminated disease and are incurable. And in that case, you cannot speak of disease-free survival unless they go into a complete response. So again, the endpoint disease-free survival applies to the adjuvant uh, programs and the adjuvant trials. And under this respect, yes, I think that disease-free survival uh, by itself uh, contains an intrinsic value for patient and that therefore should be used for uh, the primary endpoint of uh, adjuvant trials. That's interesting that you say it's got intrinsic value and, you know, obviously that makes a lot of sense, you know, from your personal experience that you've just talked about with melanoma, you know, we all want to live without disease, but from a sort of brutal commercial and governmental perspective, my understanding was that disease-free survival was being used kind of as a proxy for overall survival. And the question is whether or not disease-free survival is in fact correlated with overall survival and therefore if governments were using it in that way, they couldn't quite necessarily make the same assumptions, that those two yes. terms are slightly different. Um, do you want to talk about that complication and, and how it might affect the decisions that governments make around which drug to fund and which drug not to fund? Yeah, that is true. You need to demonstrate that the disease-free survival is a surrogate for long-term overall survival because uh, uh, disease-free survival is a measure uh, that is uh, subjected to bias. The bias being the fact that it depends on how frequently you evaluate uh, the potential of recurrence, say with uh, CT scans, uh, visits, uh, tumor marker measurements, uh, and so on. However, uh, that has been the case for uh, adjuvant trials in uh, colorectal cancer. Uh, Dan Sargent demonstrated a very uh, strict relationship and correlation between uh, uh, disease-free survival and overall survival in uh, the initial trials of adjuvant uh, uh, treatment programs uh, in colorectal cancer. And recently, uh, Shan Chi uh, again extended this observation to a correlation with even longer overall survival. So again, 
as long as uh, you have a long enough time period of disease-free survival, at least for uh, uh, colorectal cancer, that has been demonstrated. So I don't see why not using this uh, endpoint even for registration of trials. But there are some cancers where that wouldn't necessarily be the case. Uh, is that right? Uh, where the disease-free survival wouldn't necessarily have a relationship with overall survival. The two might be might be different. Yes, not only that, but uh, the surrogacy of disease-free survival for overall survival uh, may also be dependent uh, upon the drug used. Because, say, with biologics, for example, you may end up delaying the relapses and not impacting on the cure of the disease. But again, you are, uh, you are in a very delicate topic. And given the uh, robust intrinsic value of living without cancer, I think this endpoint is definitely extremely valuable and could be used for uh, drug registration. And is it used for drug registration, um, disease-free survival? Is that I, I was reading in reference to your talk that there's been a move towards sort of a change in the way that we do clinical trials and the kinds of endpoints that we use. The question is, do governments rely on disease-free survival when they're making decisions about which cancer drugs to fund and which ones not to? Well, it really depends on the condition, on the demonstration of the surrogacy, Uh, and uh, on the setting. So I would not be able to tell you in which case uh, this was used and which was not used in in other cancers. Uh, What I know certainly is that, uh, say, the three-year disease-free survival was used by NCCN to allow the three months duration of the Zilox regimen as an adjuvant treatment program to be a possibility of treatment for stage three colon cancer. So, so again, it's a very delicate issue, this, and very complicated. And I would be in favor of a simplification, given the intrinsic value of this endpoint. Yeah. And one of the things that I heard about was that it's easier to run a clinical trial if you don't need to, you know, wait the length of time that it would take for some of your patients to pass away. If you can use a surrogate endpoint, it's a lot easier to sort of wrap up the trial and report the results. You don't have to wait 10 years or 15 years to get enough people who've survived all of that time or passed away, unfortunately, to get a significant result. Is that a sort of something that's important to consider in this area? Absolutely. Not only that, but as years go by, considering the fact that the median age of onset of the major human cancers is in the 70s, if you wait longer than five, seven years to see the DFS curves to flatten out, Well, then you run into the problem that uh, disease-free survival entails as an event uh, even death for other competing causes. 
and then your measurement gets spoiled by these other events that are non-cancer related. So that, that's an additional problem that needs to be considered in needing absolutely overall survival benefits instead of disease-free survival differences in registering agents. Yeah, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because, yeah, you would get that sort of clouding of the results. Um, it's so context-specific, this area. It seems like it depends on what type of cancer you're looking at. Because if it's a very deadly cancer and you, you've given a drug and it manages to, to cure people, then, you know, that's that's relatively easy to measure. But if it's one of those cancers that isn't necessarily as deadly, it's a little harder to figure out what the benefit is from having given, you know, a very expensive medication. Right. Say the size of the benefit of the delta between the two treatments really depends upon the risk. And sometimes we run after the demonstration of a 2-3% benefit, overall benefit, say at three years or five years. And in order to demonstrate that, you need several thousand people in clinical trials. So if on top of that you add the need to wait until the demonstration of a difference in survival, you, you end up really uh, in, in, a difficult, uh, in difficult waters uh, to make your decisions. Yeah, it's so, super interesting. And, and one of the other things that occurs to me is that, you know, as we get better and better, thankfully, at treating cancers, it just means that those benefits are potentially becoming more incremental and then therefore harder to measure. So is that a phenomenon that's happening in um, immunotherapies? If we are speaking of uh, the adjuvant program for uh, uh, colorectal cancer, uh, this ceiling effect uh, has been witnessed, uh, say, in stage two patients. Nevertheless, uh, so in stage three, we still have a problem of uh, about uh, 50% chances of relapsing. And the adjuvant programs are giving an average of 15 to 20% absolute benefit in terms of very long-term disease-free survival and overall survival because the two correlates in this disease. Still, even for the stage 2 patients, we still have the problem of about 20% uh, relapsing. So it is a, a real issue dissecting out the this population of patients and under this respect the liquid biopsy avenue that has uh, been opened up uh, by the Australians for the first time uh, is, is a certainly the right way to pursue this uh, further complication in, uh, for the treatment, for the adjuvant treatment of uh, stage two colon cancer. And is that because you can measure the progress of the disease in with more frequent time points? Is that um, what the liquid biopsy does? Well, that is a possibility, but the main uh, advantage of liquid biopsy is uh, being able to identify those patients uh, that are a minority who will relapse with a very high chances. So it's, a, it's a, the most powerful prognostic factor having circulating DNA positive after uh, uh, having your tumor resected. 
Oh, I see. That's super interesting. So in those cases, they probably wouldn't benefit from treatment in the same way that the other group would. That's that's interesting. Well, that allow essentially to exclude from treatment those patients with low risk on the clinical ground and on top of that, who have a negative liquid biopsy. So that's a major advantage of running, uh, on doing the liquid biopsy in stage two patients to identify uh, the vast majority of them who do not need adjuvant programs. Sure. And just to wrap up, it seems like, I mean, this is so such a mind bending topic. I'm, I'm just trying to get my head around it. And it, you know, requires an in- intricate knowledge of what disease free survival means and how that compares to other surrogate measures or measures that you might use to measure survival for cancer trials. It just occurs to me that this might be one of the factors that slows down the, the approval of cancer drugs by governments, because they are also trying to get their heads around, you know, how this, um, pans out in one particular field and whether or not it's worth putting their money behind a particular treatment. Is that one of the um, the issues, that it's such a complicated field and it just takes very careful, slow consideration to figure out which drugs to fund? Uh, yes, it is true. Uh, but certainly the major factor that may slow down uh, uh, the approval of drug uh, is a sort of change of in mentality that is needed uh, among uh, the regulatory people uh, on another side of the story that is different from what we have discussed so far. And that is the recognition of the fact that we may not need the precision needed uh, so far in the trial of advanced cancer Okay, because now we have new drugs that gives such a huge difference with the treatment available so far. So the delta is so wide, so large, that you may not need the same level of precision uh, that we used to need uh, when the deltas, the difference in efficacy, were much smaller. Uh, what I'm saying is that if uh, a, an older treatment gave a, a two months gain in median survival, I completely agree on the fact that we needed to be very sure about that result. But if now we have new drugs that give, say, one year uh, in gain in median survival, well, there you may not need uh, six, eight hundred patients in randomized trial to demonstrate that benefit. That was another point that we touched upon during uh, the, that session. Mm. So interesting, so much to consider. Thank you so much for your time and for uh, explaining all of those curly issues in oncology. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure our listeners will. Uh, have a lot to think about in the Australian context where I'm I'm sure all of these things are equally relevant to what you've been doing in Italy. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much to you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Oncology Republic podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or read more on our website, oncologyrepublic.com.au.
Original podcast music by Victoria Nelson.